I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, where we have been walking through the pages of God's holy inspired word. What, what a wonderful Christian growth group lesson to help us to appreciate what we have here in our hands. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand there are people in other parts of the world today that would give anything to be able to hold a copy of the word of God personally, to be able to read it for themselves because they live in constant persecution and they're hounded for their faith in Jesus and, and, and threatened if found with a copy of the Word of God. Some of them thrown into prison. Oh, listen, don't take for granted this Bible that we so oftentimes read and lay aside. It is the living Word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. Oh, how I love the Word of God. It is our spiritual diet. Amen? And so as we open up the Word of God in this portion, this minor prophet of Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, as I said, this is the last word from God. For a period of over 400 years, nobody, nowhere, will hear from heaven. This is it. And we're reading it. So we'll get to tune in and see what it was that God was saying primarily to His people, the Jews, who had returned from captivity in Babylonia and then later under the Persian Empire. But God had, just as He promised, after 70 years of captivity, they were allowed to return. Not all of them, not all of them, but a remnant returned to the homeland and reconstructed the city of Jerusalem somewhat and rebuilt the temple and re restarted the theocratic government that made up the nation of Israel before the first king took the throne of Israel. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So what I want you to notice, we look in chapter 3 and we'll be beginning in verse 8, but what you'll notice is God begins to shift his attention away from the, the priests primarily, the Levites, but, but now he's speaking through the prophet Malachi primarily to the people, the populace. He's got a message for them too. And I do believe that just as God's word is alive, he's speaking to us too. There's something in here that God wants every one of us to learn. So perk your ears up, tune your attention to let, let God's word be alive to you as God speaks here. And, and God is first of all issuing a call to faithful giving. And let me just give a word of historical context and clarification. Because like I said, the, 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 the Jews have returned from captivity, many of them to Jerusalem and have re rebuilt the temple and have rebuilt the city and the walls and they have restarted the Jewish religious system that was set into place in the wilderness. As you recall, God meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai gave him specific laws and principles, if you would, that would set the Jews apart from all the people of the world. There were specific things that they would do. and This was God's law. And, and those were dietary laws and, and, and laws about intermarrying with uh, other nations and, and, and all kinds of different laws, worship laws. And, and in the midst of those laws were laws pertaining to giving. Because you see, when God established the nation of Israel in the wilderness, He had a, he had a divine form of government. It was called a theocracy. At that time, they didn't have a president. They didn't need a president. 
They had ultimate prophet Moses who interceded for them with God. He was a, a priest of sorts as well. But God was at the head. They were under the leadership and the headship of God. He told them what to do. And so in order to support this government, if you will, and the religious establishment that God was going to put in place by the priest and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all of that, there, there needed to be money coming in. And so in this theocracy, you'll find first fruit offerings and tithes under this government that God established. For instance, if you were to go back into Le Leviticus 27, and I'm not going to ask you to turn back there, but it might be up on the screen here. Uh, it, <laughs> but, but you can make a note of it. And you can, you can go back and you can put this in your uh, Bible. Or just make a note. Write it in your worship guide. Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. Because it was there that God established the general tithe. And God said to, to the nation of Israel, and there was about two hundred, two and a half million Jews out there in the wilderness, and God said, you will take on an annual basis a tenth. A general tithe meant a, a, a tenth of all that I bless you to have. And that would have been their grain that they raised. That would have been the fruit from any trees that they planted. That would have been the, a tenth of the herds. The flocks, if they raise chickens or turkeys or whatever, the oil from the, from the oil press, the, the olive oil, God says a tenth of it you will bring into the storehouse. And the reason was this was given primarily to the Levites. God said to the tribe of Levi, he says, you won't hold land. The rest of the tribes, when you go into the promised land, will be given a lot of land. They'll divide up the promised land and each of the tribes will have a place that they will be their own and they will settle there and they will raise you know, uh, crops and they will support themselves. But the tribe of Levi will be mine. The descendants of Levi will be mine. Therefore, they won't be farmers. They won't be occupied with raising things for themselves because they're going to be totally occupied with serving me in the tabernacle and taking care of the sacrifices. And if they're doing that, they're going to need support. So that's where the tithe came in. As the people brought it in, it was to support this priestly order that God was putting together. But you know, also in Numbers chapter 18, verses 26 through 28, God instructed the Levites, He instructed the Levites to tithe of the tithe, to take 10% of the 10% that all the people brought in, and they would give it to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. And so there, there was a support for that group of, of, of servants of the Lord. See, God was thinking about it. He didn't just call people to serve him without thinking about, now how are they going to be able to make a living? How are they going to eat? How are they going to support their families? So you see, this was the, the purpose of the tithe. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in verse 28, there's yet another tithe. Because God says, every three years, I want my people, in addition to the annual tithe, I want you to bring an additional 10%. And I want you to bring it and you put it at the gate of the city or the tabernacle. And he says, this particular tithe will be there to support the orphans and the widows and any strangers who happen to be traveling and coming through and need a place to stay or need some food to eat. He says, I'll make sure they get provided for it. You see how God's system was already set up? Long before the government got involved and came up with welfare and social security and all of that, God had it worked out. He says, my people will support. They'll take care of the needy. 
And so that was the purpose of the tithes that were given. And so this was given under a theocratic government established in the wilderness. Now the people are coming back from captivity to Jerusalem. Guess what? As they assembled together as a Jewish nation again, Israel, there was no king. There was no king. So they're back under a theocratic government again. They're under the headship of God. Nehemiah, you remember, he was the first governor, if you will. He came back from captivity in Persia. He helped get everything organized and established. Ezra helped to organize the priestly. And they, they organized under a theocratic government again, just as they were in the wilderness, whereby they would receive the tithes, the offerings. Oh, and by the way, in addition to the tithes, they were also responsible for bringing five offerings that represented different things like a peace offering, sin offering, etc. And, and, and the priest and the Levites would get some of the benefit of that. If there was a, a, a cow that was being offered on the sacrifice for the sins of the people, then God would allow the priest to, to take a portion of the meat for themselves. I thought it was interesting. God always preferred the fatty part to be on the offering altar to be burned. I don't know about you, but you know, when somebody's cooking ribeyes next door, you know, or ribs, you know, and it's that fat, that, that you know, that little strand, that strand of fat that, that really begins to cook and to get crisp and, and the aroma starts going through the air. You see, God says, I, that's what I want. I want the smelliest part. Let it come on up to heaven. I like the smell of ribs cooking. Now, now I, I, I paraphrase there. I can't say for sure it was ribs, but, but see, God was taking care of that. So now, what does that have to do with us? I think it's interesting, and, and I'll quickly, and, and then we'll get on to the message, but, but some people say, well, that means then we're supposed to tithe. No, no. There's nothing in the New Testament that says that New Testament believers are to, quote, tithe. Understand, the Israelites were under a theocratic government. They were under a covenant of law. And part of the law dictated to how much they were given very specific, exact amounts to give. And not to do that would have been disobedience. That would have been sin. And then you'd be in trouble with God. We're going to talk about that. But, but, but what about us as Christians? If you want to hold your place at Malachi chapter 3 and just cruise over in your New Testament very quickly, I'll take you over to 1 Corinthians because Paul helps us to gain some insight into that. I'll take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 because Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to, to followers of Christ, believers, under the new, new covenant, the covenant of grace. And I thought it was interesting in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, or lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul gives us the formula. It's simple. He simply says, as God has blessed you, then you give proportionately. If God is, uh, for whatever reason, in his determination for your life, you, you're just eking out an existence, you're just getting enough to pay the bills, and you just have a little bit left over to give, then that's what you give. You give a little bit. On the other hand, if God has blessed you to have a surplus, and, and you, you realize that, you know, I've got quite a bit, and God expects you. The more he's blessed you to have, the more God expects you to give. And so this is under the covenant of grace. We see this so beautifully 
worked out, if you'll just flip over a few pages into 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing about the brethren in Galatia, particularly the churches in the area of Macedonia. Now I'm going to tell you something. You're talking about people setting the, the, the high mark. The Macedonians set the mark. If you want to understand your attitude towards giving to God, then you go back and you read again and study this and meditate on the spirit and the attitude of the Macedonian Christians. Let me read with you there, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul's writing to believers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us, in other words, begging us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Paul says, first of all, they made sure they gave themselves to the Lord. You cannot be a faithful giver. You cannot be an obedient giver if you don't first give your life to Christ. If you don't first give yourself to the Lord. But Paul is saying, these Macedonians, they're living in virtual poverty. They're struggling just to get by. And so when the word came to them that they had an offering, an opportunity to give to help to support the, the poverty stricken back in Jerusalem, they were, oh, they were exhilarated. Now I can imagine Paul sending word to the Macedonians something like this. Now listen, brothers and sisters, we, we understand that you fellows up there, y'all are in poverty. You, you've had hard times. You're in great affliction. You're barely getting food to feed yourself and your families. And, and, and here you are wanting to give this, this great, generous, given offering. And Paul said, we don't, we don't expect that. And they said, oh, Brother Paul, please, please. We love the Lord. He's given so much to us. We're so blessed to be followers of Christ. Oh, how can we not but give generously and happily and cheerfully? I've always said that the offering time in the church service ought to be the, the most cheerful time. That ought to be a time when we're just getting, jumping up and, and giving high fives and, and digging deep and, and singing out and praising the Lord. And that sometimes it looks like a funeral dirge when we're handing the plate around. You know, people getting that long, drawn look. Well, let me tell you something. The question that we need to ask as Christians when it comes to giving is not so much, what percent do I need? No, no. The question we need to ask ourselves is, can I give more? Once you come to a figure, you need to ask yourself like the Macedonians. Think about what Christ means to you. Think about the benefits of being a born again believer of Jesus Christ. Think about what God has done for you and then ask yourself, is this really the maximum that I can give? God doesn't say go out there and, and, and after you've paid your electric bill and your food and your essentials, if you've got any money left, go out there and go on a spending spree and buy those toys and trinkets and things that you want and then come back and say, now what do I have left to give God? Oh no! No, before you even begin to address those things that you think you want, you need to get before God and say, now Lord, how much of this do I really need? I need to give to you first. And then if I have anything left, then I'll address what my wants are. But now, we need to look at what 
the text is saying here in its original content, context. And I want you to see that because you remember there's this question-answer thing going on between the, the people and, and the priest and, and God and now the people and God. And God confronts His people for poor stewardship. He hits them right between the eyes. And you'll see it right here in verse 8, chapter 3. Through Malachi, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? God says, In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Let's just stop there a second. Look at their sinful attitude. Can you imagine? I don't know about you, but I was just incensed. I was just angry beyond description when I heard the news story of somebody robbing a Salvation Army red kettle. I mean, how low can you get when somebody's out there ringing a bell to collect, you know, offerings to help support needy people and you come and steal the kettle? Oh man, I tell you what, I, will, I wouldn't want to be standing beside them on Judgment Day. But, but the, the idea robbing from the needy and yet God says to His people, you're robbing from Me. When you're withholding your offerings, when you're withholding the, the tithes, you are robbing from Me. And there are consequences when you rob from God. You say, man, I'm glad I'm not under the tithe anymore. Whew, I don't want God on, <laughs> against Me. Oh, guess what? When you go out there and you spend money that was designated in your soul, when God convicts you and says, this is what you can give to support my kingdom causes after you've taken care of your basic needs and you go out there and you spend it on yourself and you hoard it to yourself, you put it in the bank or savings account or CD or something like that, when God intended that money to be supporting the homeless and the orphans and feeding the poor and going out there and supporting missionaries, oh, let me tell you something, you're robbing God just as much as these people were. They're failing to bring the tithes and the offerings that God has specified. And let me tell you, there are consequences. If you, you, don't have to, you don't have to turn back now, but, but that chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is a whole chapter of blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. As God is setting up His government with His people, and this covenant, the theocratic covenant with His people, God says, if you obey Me, there will be blessings. If you disobey Me, you better believe it. There are going to be some curses. And there are going to be harsh curses. And you will suffer the consequences if you disobey me. Robbing from God, ladies and gentlemen, is disobeying God. And so one of the problems that you see already in, in chapter 2, you remember, we go back there in Malachi chapter 2, verse 2. God says, if you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Look what he says. Yes, I have cursed them already. And if you drop down in that same chapter, in Malachi chapter 2, look at verse 9. God says, Therefore I, I also have made you contemptible and based before all the people. Listen, the people of God, the Jews, were suffering at that time. God was withholding blessings at that time. Things weren't going so good for them and they understood something was wrong. God says, yes, I'll tell you what's wrong. You're under my curse. And the reason you're under my curse is because you're disobedient and you're not given. You're robbing me. 
What does that mean to you and me? You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he says, but this I say, if you sow, that means given to God, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And if, if you're tightwad towards God and His causes, His church, then guess what? God says, I'm not motivated one iota to bless you. Paul said that. If you sow sparingly, he says, guess what? You will reap sparingly. What's your attitude about giving to God's kingdom? Are you like the Macedonian churches? Are you exhilarated? You can't wait to the next opportunity. Do you look all through your bank account and your extra money and whatever and just say, oh, what can I give? I want to give more. I want to give more. Is that your attitude? Or are you an Ebenezer Scrooge with God's resources? I thought it was interesting. Dr. Billy Graham told a story on himself when he was early in his ministry. He and his wife Ruth were in a worship service. And it came time for the offering. And the offering plate was coming around and he said he reached down in his pocket and dug out a bill and dropped it in the plate and it was moving on by. Just as he let go of the bill, he realized it was a $50 bill. <laughs> he thought he'd grab onto a $5 bill. So, but it was too late. The plate was moving on. There goes the 50 he said, he leaned over to his wife, Ruth, and he said, Honey, I, I didn't mean to give that 50. I, I was going to give a five, but oh well, God will bless me. He says, his, Ruth, his wife, Ruth, turned to him and said, You'll get credit. So you gave 50, but you'll get credit for a five. <laughs> that sounds like Ruth Graham. But that's it. God looks at our heart, He knows, He knows our motivation and our attitude. And let me tell you something, the Lord offers motivation for faith giving. He does, right here in chapter 3 of Malachi. I want you to drop down to verse 10. God says to his people, he's, he, he's already accused them, you're robbing from me, but I give you a second chance. He says, look what he says, bring all the tithe, not some of it, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. And if you could see a, a temple in that day, the temple complex, there was a section of the temple that consisted of a long hallway. And on each side of that long hallway were storerooms. So as the people brought their grain, as the people brought their fruit, as the people brought their uh, olive oil or papaya, no, <laughs> olive oil, <laughs> that dates me, doesn't it? But anyway, as they brought the, 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 a tenth of, of what God has blessed them with, they were put in these storehouses for the purpose of feeding the Levites and feeding the poor and, and all of that. So God said, bring all the tithes into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. And look what God says, and prove me. In other words, test me now. You know, the Scripture normally forbids you to do that. The Scripture usually said, don't test God. Don't tempt Him. Don't test God. But this is one time God said, go on. Go on. You know, it'd be like me if I came up against uh, one of the NBA basketball players, you know. And, and you know, he, they'd probably you know, say, go on. Try, try, to, try to dunk on me. Try to make a layup on me. Go ahead, test me. God's telling His people, He's saying... Go ahead, test me, try me, and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven. See if I won't pour out upon you blessings so much that there won't be room enough to store it all. God says, go ahead, put me to the test and see. I wonder how many Christians today are willing to take God at His word and to take that challenge, to give Him everything you can, to give generously, well, you see, that's God's motive. He's motivating His people to give plentiful. 
And he says, in, in doing so, there will be plentiful blessings. And yet, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, that same chapter I said was the blessings and the curses. God says, if you obey me, if you do according to what I tell you to do, I will bless you. I will bless you. And I will bless you. There's plenty of motivation to be faithful and given. I take you back to that 2 Corinthians 9, 6 passage I mentioned where Paul was saying, but this I say, if you sow sparingly, you'll also reap sparingly. Well, that's not the end of the verse. He goes on to say, but if you, if you sow bountifully, if you give to God bountifully, he says, oh, you will reap bountifully. And he says, let each person give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Dear brother and sister, let me tell you something. If when it comes offering time, whether it's a special offering or the regular offering, when it comes time for you to have the opportunity to give, if you squeeze in George Washington so bad and you're weeping and you just can't hardly, and it's just grieving your heart to let him drop in that offering plate, I, I got news for you. Keep it. Keep it. God's not going to bless it. He knows your heart. God says, I love cheerful givers. I love those who love to give for my causes, to support my church, to support my kingdom. Not only that, but as you read further there, you know, God's saying, I'll pour out all these bountiful blessings. But he says, also, I will give to you providential protection. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. You see what God's doing? He's giving them all kinds of incentives to be faithful. Well, he says that right there, he says, I will rebuke the devourer. Some commentators say, well, that's the, the neighboring nations who were known to come in and raid the, the herds of the Israelites, raid the farms of the Israelites, and, and to, to plunder their farms and take their stuff. That could be the devourer. God says, I'll rebuke them. I'll hold them back. Or it could be the dreaded locusts. God oftentimes used locust swarms to come in just, just a cloud of these hungry little pesty insects that just eat up everything. And, 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 God, and, and God says, I'll rebuke them. You be faithful to me. Not only will I pour out blessings, but I will protect you. Do you realize the same principle applies to you and me? If we're faithful to God, if we're generous in supporting His causes, God will do the same for us. Let's move along. God's also issuing not only a call to faithful giving, but as we look at the text beginning in verse 13, we'll see that God is issuing a call to respectful attitudes. And as we look there in chapter 3, at verse 13, He says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. You say, what have we spoken against you? You know, the, the, the Israelites were really thick, weren't they? I... You know, it's like you walk into the kitchen and there your child's got their hand in the cookie jar that they're forbidden to have cookies before dinner. And not only do they have one, they got a fistful of them little chunky chocolate chip cookies. And you know, and, and you say, what are you doing? They say, what? What? <laughs> and that's what God has said. He said, you, you, your attitude, the words you're using, they stink. You've got a terrible attitude towards me. 
And you know, I, I think about back in Psalm, in Psalm 39, verse 1, where David is talking about, he's, you know, he's talking about how important it was to him to guard his mouth. How do you, how do you talk to God? Do, do you guard the way your, your language comes out to God? Do you have a bad attitude towards God? Maybe you feel like you got a bum deal, a bum rap or whatever, and you know, and maybe God's not dealt out to you the blessings that brother so-and-so's gotten or sister so-and-so, so you got an attitude towards God. You know, and, and it comes out in the way you talk to God. Are you resentful? You know, David said in Psalm 39, 1, he says, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. I know some Christians probably ought to put that to practice too, you know. Sometimes you ought to muzzle our mouth because some, you know what Jesus said over in Matthew in chapter 15, talking about the tongue, talking about our speech. Jesus gives us a, a, a very important principle here. Let me just go back there in chapter 15 of Matthew and remind you what the Lord said. And this applies to us because Jesus says in verse 18 of chapter 15 of Matthew, he says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. Let me tell you something. If your heart is not right with God, I don't care how often you pray and how pretty you pray, it's going to slip out through your tongue. You will betray your attitude. And this is what was happening with the, 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 the Jews in that time. And God is holding them accountable for their language. He says, your language is, is harsh. It's disrespectful towards me. Now, does that mean that you and I can't be angry in talking to God from time to time? I won't go back and read it, but if you go back in your Bible or make a note to go back and look at Job 7, verse 11 through 17, you know, we talk about good old Job, patient, you know, suffering as he did. His, his, his herds were, you know, stolen. His servants were killed. His, his, his children all were killed, you know. God allowed Satan to do all this. And then he suffered these terrible boils that were so painful and agony. And, you know, and, and if you think that Job was just kind of like, oh, yeah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know. Well, he did praise God. But, but in chapter 7, verse 11, Job just said, I'm not going to restrain my speech, Lord. I've got to tell you how I'm feeling. And sometimes I wish I hadn't even been born. I just, you know, Lord, I'm hurting so bad. I just wonder what's the purpose. I think about the psalmist over in Psalm 13. And I say that because sometimes Christians get put on a guilt trip because they express anger towards God or, or, or strong negative feelings towards God. But, you know, what about Psalm 13 where the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Folks, God's not so delicate that you can't talk honestly. When you're hurting, it's okay to tell God, God, I, Father, I am, I'm hurting so bad. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, yes, I've got to confess to you. I do feel some anger inside. It's okay to express negative feelings to God as long as we do it humbly and as long as we do it respectfully. That's not what the Jews were doing. That's what Jesus was holding them accountable for. 
because they were talking harsh towards God. Look in verse 14 in chapter 3 of Malachi. He, he says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinances or His laws and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed and, and, and for those who do wickedness are raised up. Yes, those who tempt God go free. They're saying, you know, God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. He, 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 he's for the wicked. You can tempt God and get away with it. You don't have to be faithful. Listen, they said, we serve God. We, we were repentant and mournful. Oh, it's all a lie. They weren't. They were just pretending that they were, but they weren't. So all the things they were saying there, and God says, those are harsh words. Not only, not only are you speaking disrespectfully towards me, but you are arrogantly lying about me. And the charges of his people were contemptuous and unfounded. And they were. If you go back, they were saying, it doesn't matter. If you, there's no profit in being faithful to God. That's a lie. That's a bold-faced lie. They don't know because they never were faithful to God's ordinances. Or when they said, we have walked as mourners, we've shown repentance before God. Oh, they may have worn sackcloths and ashes and, and pretended to cry, but deep inside God says, there's no repentance in your heart. That's a lie. And he says, God calls the proud blessed. Had they forgotten what the Word of God said? Pride comes before the fall. God hates the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So you see, they were totally contemptuous towards God. They were unfounded. Now you contrast their attitude towards God with the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 1 where the psalmist says, Blessed, happy is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly or stand in the path of the sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And he will bring forth fruit in his season and his leaf won't wither and whatever he does will prosper. Contrast that attitude towards God and the attitude of God's people that Malachi is talking about here. What's your attitude? Do you love God? Do you love his word? Do you cherish him? Do you speak even when you are angry or upset, do you speak with a deep reverence and respect towards God? See, God tells us in that next to the last book of the Bible, in Jude, in Jude 14, 15, God says, I will hold those who speak harshly against me on the day of judgment. I will hold them accountable. They won't get away with it. So when you hear people out there blaspheming and running off at the mouth, you know, it gets, it gets on me. Sometimes people say, well, you just wait till I get to heaven. You just wait, you just wait till I get to heaven. I, and I, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell you, why did you let that happen? Why didn't you? I, got, I, I just want to say, shut up. <laughs> if you get to heaven, then guess what? You're going to be so absolutely stunned and mesmerized by the awesome glory and splendor and power and might and holiness of God. You'll be spellbound. You'll forget all of those crazy notions like that. You're not going to go up there and run your mouth off at God. God, as we close out chapter 3, some of you are saying, praise the Lord. 
God's blessing. God's blessing upon his faithful. I like this. You see, some of us suffer from what I call the Elijah syndrome. You remember the prophet Elijah? After God had just energized him to, to, to slay 450 false prophets of Baal. Single-handedly. I mean, what a he-man. And then, and then one measly pagan queen by the name of Jezebel writes him a nasty note. and <laughs> says, you know, uh, dear Elijah, I heard what you did to my prophets. I'm going to kill you. Now he just slain 450 false prophets. One wicked queen writes him a note and he runs for his life. I mean, he runs for days into the wilderness. He's exhausted. He's drained. He's, oh, he's depressed. God has to feed him because he's not even getting out there and getting any food for himself. And so he's out there and he's all depressed. And in 1 Kings 19, you know, he has one of those Elijah pity parties. And, and we have them too, folks. He says to God, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of God of hosts because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone left, or I alone am left, and, and they seek to take my life. And he's, he's saying, oh God, I was so faithful to you. I did just what you wanted me to do. And, and look, look here, I'm the only one left. I'm all by myself. And sometimes when you're trying to faithfully serve God and it doesn't seem like anybody else cares, you may feel like Elijah. Huh, I'm just all by myself. God I responded right away. He said, Elijah, get up. And look, here's what I want you to do. This is where I want you to go. This is, what the, this is the plan I have for you. This is the mission I have for you. And, but listen to what he told Elijah. He said, oh, by the way, Elijah, Mr. I'm all by myself. He said in verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He says, Elias, you're not by yourself. I've got a remnant. I've preserved a remnant. And folks, if you go through your scriptures, you'll find that God has always preserved a remnant for himself of his people. You can go back all the way into Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, Isaiah chapter 10 verse 20, Jeremiah 23, 3. You can find it even in the New Testament in Romans chapter 11 where Paul is writing in verses 4 through 5. God has said, even when the multitude, even when the masses, even when the majority of the people turn their backs on me and it looks like all is hopeless, God says, I've got and I will always have a remnant, a small group. Oh, they may be small in number, but they are mighty in faith. Do you realize the very ones that God was speaking to through Malachi? They were a remnant. The ones that came back from captivity. There were many Jews that never came back. This was a remnant. But God's not talking about them. Look there what He's talking about. He look in verse 16. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, for who meditate on his name. You understand, we're, we've been talking about the priests are rotten, the other religious leaders, the Levites are rotten, the majority of the people, based upon what God is saying, they're rotten to the core. I mean, if you looked at the picture, you'd say, there's no hope for Israel. This is the last chapter in the Old Testament, and they're all rotten. I'm so glad that God included these last verses in chapter 3 
Because it's up, 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 hold on, hold on. You don't know them. You don't see them. But I've got them. There's a remnant. And he says, they are faithful. And they speak to one another. You know, God tells us as Christians, because those who are faithful, those who are dedicated to practicing biblical Christianity today, and not go with the flow, and are willing to go against the, 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 the grain of the, the cultural Christianity that is so infested churches and taking them away from the practice of biblical Christianity. Listen, for those who choose to truly stand on the Word of God and be faithful to God and to worship as God prescribes and to live as God's Word calls, listen, you are not in the majority. You'll never be in the majority. You'll always be in the minority. You will be a remnant. But praise God, you're in the remnant because it's the remnant who will see eternity. It's the remnant who will see Christ coming in glory and be with Him. It's the remnant who will step over into eternity and live in the splendor of heaven and serve God forever and ever. It's going to be the majority of the remnant. And God says, it's, it's important that you know that. And He says, I'm, I've write a, a, a book of remembrance. He says, I'll never forget these. I'll never forget these. There was that as a, as a chapter, as the book of, of Malachi is the beginning to close. You, you can see the pages of the Old Testament gradually, gradually beginning to close. And it looks so negative and it looks so bleak. God says, oh, don't, don't overlook that little group I've got there. They love me. They're talking. They're encouraging each other. They're passing along the word of God. They're giving faithfully. They're worshiping faithfully. They're serving me faithfully. And then... Malachi ends. Well, I got one more message, but you get the picture. The Old Testament ends. 400 plus years go by. Nobody's heard from God. And the nation of Israel is such a, such a terrible, sordid spiritual state. Anybody would just want to, could, could, they even, could they even carry on with the promise of God? Fast forward. Over 400 years. And if you look closely in the midst of the population of the Jews, in the darkness of the sea of apostasy and sinfulness of that day, you'll see a faint light glimmering. It's the radiance of the remnant. They're still there. After 400 years, after all the, the judgment that God has announced upon Israel, they're still there. They're like that little speck of light in the darkness of sin that has so enshrouded the nation of Israel. It is their radiance and it's the radiance of God's faithful remnant and among them is an elderly priest by the name of Zacharias and his elderly wife Elizabeth and their miracle baby who happens to grow up to be one of the most dynamic Old Testament prophets by the name of John the Baptist. Among that small group of remnants, there's also an elderly Jewish man by the name of Simeon, who despite the apostasy and the, and the immorality and the wickedness of the nation of Israel, he still has not given up hope that God told him, you're going to see the Messiah. You're going to see the Messiah before you die. There's an elderly prophetess by the name of Anna. She's part of the remnant too because despite what the, all the religious leaders have abandoned the truthfulness of God's Word and practice of worshiping God, oh, not Anna. She's holding to the truth of God's Word and the hope of God's Word. 
but also in the midst of that small remnant that we find at the dawn of the New Testament is a humble and honorable carpenter by the name of Joseph. And a very simple, insignificant, young Jewish virgin girl by the name of Mary. And you know how the story goes. <laughs>